Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 10, Chapter 4. An Awkward Friend. That same night, Quasimodo did not sleep. He had just made his last round in the church. He did not notice, as he closed the doors, that the archdeacon passed, and seemed somewhat vexed at seeing him so carefully bolt and chain the immense iron bars which made the wide leaves as solid as a wall. Dom Claude looked even more preoccupied than usual. Moreover, ever since his nocturnal adventure in the cell, he had abused Quasimodo constantly. But though he maltreated him, nay, sometimes even beat him, nothing shook the submission, patience, and humble resignation of the faithful ringer. From the archdeacon he would bear anything and everything—insults, threats, blows, without murmuring a reproach, without uttering a complaint. At most he anxiously followed Dom Claude with his eye as he climbed the tower stairs. But the archdeacon had carefully abstained from appearing again in the gypsy's presence. That night, then, Quasimodo, after giving a glance at his poor, forsaken bells, at Jacqueline, Marie, and Thibaud, had ascended to the roof of the north tower, and there, placing his well-closed dark lantern upon the leads, gazed out over Paris. The night, as we have already said, was very dark. Paris, which at this time was but scantily lighted, presented to the eye a confused collection of black masses, intersected here and there by the silvery bend of the Seine. Quasimodo saw but a single light, and that in the window of a distant structure, the dim, dark outlines of which were distinctly visible above the roofs, in the direction of Port Saint-Antoine. There, too, someone was watching." While his one eye roamed over the expanse of mist and night, the ringer felt within him an inexplicable sense of alarm. For some days he had been upon his guard. He had constantly seen evil-looking men prowling about the church, and never taking their eyes from the young girl's hiding place. He fancied that there might be some plot brewing against the unfortunate refugee— he imagined that she was a victim to popular hatred, like himself, and that something might come of it soon. He therefore stationed himself upon his tower, on the alert, dreaming in his dreamery, as Rabelais has it, his eye by turns bent upon the cell and upon Paris, keeping faithful watch, like a trusty dog, with a thousand doubts and fears." All at once, while scrutinizing the great city with the one eye which nature, by a sort of compensating justice, had made so piercing that it might almost supply the other organs which he lacked, it seemed to him that the outline of the Quai de la Vieille Pelletrie looked somewhat peculiarly, that there was something moving at that point, that the line of the parapet darkly defined against the white water was not straight and steady like that of the other quays but that it rippled as he gazed, like the waves of a river or the heads of a moving multitude. This struck him as singular. He redoubled his attention. The movement seemed to be towards the city. There was no light to be seen. It continued for some time upon the quay. Then it subsided gradually, 
as if whatever might be passing had entered the interior of the island. Then it ceased entirely, and the line of the key became straight and motionless once more. While Quasimodo was lost in conjectures, it seemed to him as if the movement had reappeared in the Rue de Parvis, which leads into the city directly opposite the front of Notre Dame. At last, dense as was the darkness, he saw the head of a column emerge from that street, and in an instant fill the square with a crowd, in which nothing could be distinguished in the shadows but that it was a crowd. The spectacle had its terrors. It is probable that this strange procession, which seemed so desirous of stealing along unseen under cover of darkness, was equally careful to observe unbroken silence. And yet some noise appeared inevitable, were it only the tramp of feet. But this sound could not reach our deaf man's ear, and the vast host, so dimly seen and wholly unheard by him, yet moving and marching onward so near him, produced upon him the effect of an army of ghosts, mute, impalpable, hidden in mists. He seemed to see a fog-bank full of men advancing upon him, to see shadows stirring amid the shades. Then his fears revived. The idea of an attempt against the gypsy girl again presented itself to his mind. He had a confused sense that a violent scene was at hand. At this critical moment he held counsel with himself with better judgment and more promptness than could have been expected from so ill-organized a brain. Should he awaken the gypsy? Help her to escape? Which way? The streets were infested. The church backed up against the river. There was no boat, no outlet. There was but one thing to be done— to die, if need be, on the threshold of Notre Dame, to resist at least until some help should come, if any there were, and not to disturb Esmeralda's sleep. The wretched girl would be wakened soon enough to die. This resolve once taken, he began to scan the enemy with greater composure. The crowd seemed to increase every moment in the square. He presumed that they must be making very little noise, as the windows in the streets and square remained closed. Suddenly a light shone out, and in an instant seven or eight blazing torches rose above the heads of the multitude, shaking out their tufts of flame in the darkness. Quasimodo then plainly saw an eddying, frightful mass of ragged men and women below him in the square armed with scythes, pikes, bill-hooks, and halberds, whose myriad blades glistened on every hand. Here and there black pitchforks were reared horn-like above those hideous faces. He vaguely recalled this mob, and fancied he recognized the heads of those who had but a few months previous saluted him as the Pope of Fools. A man, grasping a torch in one hand and a whip in the other, climbed upon a post, and seemed to be haranguing the crowd. At the same time, the strange army went through a number of evolutions, as if taking their station about the church. Quasimodo picked up his lantern and descended to the platform between the towers, to get a nearer view and to consider means of defense. Clopin Troyfou, having arrived before the great door of Notre Dame, 
had indeed drawn up his troops in line of battle. Although he did not expect to meet with any resistance, he desired, like a prudent general, to preserve such order as would enable him, if necessary, to confront a sudden attack from the watch. He had therefore stationed his brigade in such a way that, viewed from above and from a distance, you would have taken them for the Roman triangle of the Battle of Ethnoma, the boar's head of Alexander, or the famous wedge of Gustavus Adolphus. The base of this triangle rested upon the farther end of the square, so that it blocked the Rue du Parvis. One side faced the Hotel Dieu, the other the Rue Saint-Pierre-au-Boeuf. Clopin Troyfou had placed himself at the head, with the Duke of Egypt, our friend Jeanne, and the most daring of the beggar tribe. Such an attack as the vagrants were now planning to make upon Notre Dame was no very uncommon thing in the towns of the Middle Ages. What are now known as police did not then exist. There was no central controlling power in populous cities, or more particularly, in capitals. The feudal system constructed these large communities after a strange fashion. A city was a collection of a thousand seigneuries, or manors, which divided it up into districts of all shapes and sizes. Hence arose a thousand contradictory police forces. That is, no police at all. In Paris, for instance, independently of the 141 nobles laying claim to manorial rights, there were twenty-five who also claimed the additional right to administer justice, from the Bishop of Paris, who owned one hundred and five streets, down to the prior of Notre-Dame-des-Champs, who owned but four. All these feudal justiciaries recognized the supreme power of the king only in name. All had right of way. All were on their own ground. Louis XI, that indefatigable laborer who did such good work in beginning the demolition of the feudal structure, carried on by Richelieu and Louis XIV to the advantage of royalty, and completed by Mirabeau to the advantage of the people, Louis XI had indeed striven to break this network of seigneuries which enveloped Paris, by hurling violently athwart it two or three police ordinances. Thus, in 1465, the inhabitants were commanded to light their windows with candles at nightfall, and to shut up their dogs under pain of the halter. During the same year, an order was issued that the streets must be closed with iron chains after dark, and citizens were forbidden to wear daggers or any offensive weapons in the street at night. But all these attempts at municipal legislation soon fell into disuse. People let the wind blow out the candles in their windows, and allowed their dogs to roam. The iron chains were only put up in time of siege. The prohibition of daggers led to but little change. The old framework of feudal jurisdiction remained standing. An immense number of bailiwicks and seigneuries, crossing one another throughout the city, crowded, tangled, interlapping, and interwoven a useless confusion of watches, sub-watches, and counter-watches, in spite of which brigandage, rapine, and sedition were carried on by main force. It was not, therefore, an unheard-of thing in the midst of such disorder for a part of the populace to make a bold attack upon a palace, a great mansion, or a house in the most thickly settled quarters of the town. In the majority of cases, the neighbors did not meddle with the matter, 
unless the pillage extended to their own houses. They turned a deaf ear to the musketry, closed their shutters, barricaded their doors, left the outbreak to be settled with or without the watch, and next day it would be reported. Last night, Etienne Barbette's house was entered. Marshal Clermont was carried off, etc. Accordingly, not only royal habitations, the Louvre, the Paris, the Bastille, the Tournelle, but the houses of the nobility, the Petit Bourbon, the Hotel de Seine, Hotel d'Angoulême, etc., had their battlemented walls and their portcullises. Churches were guarded by their sanctity. Certain of them, however, but not Notre Dame, were fortified. The abbot of Saint-Germain-des-Prés was as strongly entrenched as any baron, and more brass was consumed there in bombards than in bells. His fortress was still standing in 1610. Now the church alone exists, and that in ruins. Let us return to Notre Dame. When the first arrangements had been made, and we must say to the honor of the discipline of the vagrants that Clopin's orders were carried out in silence and with admirable precision, the worthy leader of the band mounted the parapet of the Paravis and raised his hoarse, surly voice, keeping his face turned towards Notre Dame, and waving his torch, the flame of which, flickering in the wind and now and again veiled by its own smoke, first revealed and then hid the front of the church, lit up with a reddish glow. To you, Louis de Beaumont, Bishop of Paris, Councillor of the Court of Parliament, I, Clopin Troyfou, King of Blacklegs, King of Rogues, Prince of Slang, and Bishop of Fools, proclaim. Our sister, falsely condemned for magic, has taken refuge in your church. You owe her shelter and safeguard. Now the parliamentary court desire to recover her person, and you have given your consent, so that indeed she would be hanged tomorrow on the Place de Greve, were not God and the vagrants here to aid her. We have therefore come hither to you, O bishop. If your church be sacred, our sister is likewise sacred. If our sister be not sacred, neither is your church. Wherefore we summon you to deliver over to us the girl if you would save your church. Or we will seize upon the girl and will plunder the church, which will be a righteous deed. In token whereof I here plant my banner, and may God have you in his guard, O Bishop of Paris. Unfortunately, Quasimodo could not hear these words, uttered as they were with a sort of somber, savage majesty. A vagrant handed the banner to Clopin, who planted it solemnly between two flagstones. It was a pitchfork, from whose prongs hung a bleeding mass of carrion. This done, the king of Tunis turned and glanced at his army. A fierce host, whose eyes glittered almost as brightly as their pikes. After an instant's pause, he cried, "'Forward, boys! To your work, rebels!' Thirty stout fellows, with sturdy limbs and crafty faces, stepped from the ranks with hammers, pincers, and crowbars on their shoulders. They advanced towards the main entrance of the church, mounted the steps, and were soon crouching beneath the arch, working away at the door with pincers and levers. A crowd of vagrants followed them to help or encourage. 
they thronged the eleven steps leading to the porch. Still, the door refused to yield. The devil, how tough and obstinate it is, said one. It is old, and its joints are stiff, said another. Courage, comrades, replied Clopin. I'll wager my head against an old slipper that you'll have opened the door, captured the girl, and stripped the high altar before a single sacristan is awake. Stay, I think the lock is giving way. Clopin was interrupted by a tremendous din behind him. He turned. A huge beam had fallen from the sky. It had crushed a dozen of his vagrants on the church steps and rebounded to the pavement with the crash of a cannon. Breaking the legs of various tatterdemalions here and there in the crowd, which scattered with cries of terror. In the twinkling of an eye, the enclosed portion of the square was cleared. The rebels, although protected by the deep arches of the porch, forsook the door, and Clopin himself retired to a respectful distance. I had a narrow escape, cried Jean. I felt the wind of it as it passed by Jove. But Pierre Lassomer is knocked down. It is impossible to picture the mingled consternation and affright which overcame the bandits with the fall of this beam. They stood for some moments staring into the air, more dismayed by that fragment of wood than by twenty thousand of the king's archers. Satan, growled the Duke of Egypt, that smells of sorcery. It must be the moon which flung that log at us said André Le Rouge. Why, replied François Champrune, they say the moon is a friend of the Virgin Mary. By the Pope's head, exclaimed Clopin, but you are a parcel of fools. And yet, even he could not explain the fall of the plank. Meanwhile, nothing was to be seen upon the front of the cathedral, to the top of which the light of the torches did not reach. The heavy plank lay in the middle of the square, and loud were the groans of the wretched men who had received its first shock, and who had been almost cut in two upon the sharp edges of the stone steps. The king of Tunis, his first dismay over, at last hit upon an explanation which seemed plausible to his companions. Odds bodikins! Is the clergy defending itself? Then sack! 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 repeated the rabble, with a frantic cheer and they discharged a volley of crossbows and hackbutts at the church. At this sound, the peaceable inhabitants of the houses round about were awakened. Several windows were thrown open, and nightcaps and hands holding candles appeared at them. "'Fire at the windows!' roared Clopin. The windows were hastily closed, and the poor citizens, who had barely had time to cast a terrified glance at that scene of glare and tumult, returned to sweat with fear beside their wives, wondering if the witches were holding their revels in the square before Notre Dame, or if the Burgundians had made another attack, as in 64. Then the husbands thought of robbery, the wives of violence, and all trembled. Sack, repeated the men of slang, but they dared not advance. They looked at the church. They looked at the beam. The beam did not budge. The building retained its calm, deserted look. But something rooted the vagrants to the spot. "'To work, I say, rebels!' shouted Troifu. "'Force the door!' No one stirred. 
"'Body of me,' said Clopin. "'Here's a pack of fellows who are afraid of a rafter.' "'An old rebel then addressed him. "'Captain, it's not the rafter that stops us. "'It's the door, which is entirely covered with iron bars. "'Our pincers are of no use.' "'Well, what would you have to burst it in?' asked Clopin. "'Ah, we need a battering ram.' "'The king of Tunis ran bravely up to the much-dreaded beam "'and set his foot upon it. "'Here you have one,' he exclaimed. "'The cannons themselves have sent it to you.' "'And with a mocking salutation in the direction of the church, "'he added, "'Thanks, gentlemen.' "'This piece of bravado proved effective.' The charm of the beam was broken. The vagrants recovered their courage. Soon the heavy log, lifted like a feather by two hundred sturdy arms, was furiously hurled against the great door which they had vainly striven to shake. Seen thus in the dim light cast by the scanty torches of the vagrants, that long beam borne by that crowd of men who rapidly dashed it against the church, looked like some monstrous beast with countless legs, attacking the stone giantess head foremost. At the shock of the log, the semi-metallic door rang like a vast drum. It did not yield, but the whole cathedral shook, and the deep vaults of the building re-echoed. At the same moment, a shower of large stones began to rain from the top of the façade upon the assailants. "'The devil!' cried Jeanne. "'Are the towers shaking down their balustrades upon our heads?' But the impulse had been given, the king of Tunis setting the example. The bishop was certainly defending himself, and so they only beat against the door with greater fury, despite the stones which cracked their skulls to right and left. It is remarkable that these stones all fell singly, but they followed one another in rapid succession.' The men of slang always felt two at a time, one at their legs, the other on their heads. Few of them missed their mark, and already a large heap of dead and wounded gasped and bled under the feet of the besiegers, whose ranks, they being now goaded to madness, were constantly renewed. The long beam still battered the door at regular intervals, like the clapper of a bell. The stones still rained down, and the door creaked and groaned. The reader has doubtless guessed that the unexpected resistance which so enraged the vagrants came from Quasimodo. Chance had unluckily served the brave deaf man. When he descended to the platform between the towers, his head whirled in confusion. For some moments he ran along the gallery, coming and going like a madman, looking down from above at the compact mass of vagrants, ready to rush upon the church, imploring God or the devil to save the gypsy girl. He thought of climbing the south belfry and ringing the alarm, but before he could set the bell in motion, before Big Marie's voice could utter a single shriek, the church door might be forced ten times over. This was just the instant when the rebels advanced with their tools— what was to be done? All at once he remembered that the masons had been at work all day, repairing the walls, timbers, and roof of the south tower. This was a ray of light. The wall was of stone, the roof of lead, and the timbers of wood. 
the timbers were so huge, and there were so many of them, that they went by the name of the forest. Quasimodo flew to the tower. The lower rooms were indeed full of materials. There were piles of rough stones, sheets of lead in rolls, bundles of laths, heavy beams already shaped by the saw, heaps of plaster and rubbish, a complete arsenal. There was no time to be lost. The hammers and levers were at work below. With a strength increased tenfold by his sense of danger, he lifted one of the beams, the heaviest and longest that he could find. He shoved it through a dormer window. Then, laying hold of it again outside the tower, he pushed it over the edge of the balustrade surrounding the platform and launched it into the abyss. The enormous rafter, in its fall of 160 feet, scraping the wall, smashing the carvings, turned over and over several times like one of the arms of a windmill moving through space. At last it reached the ground. An awful shriek rose upon the air, and the black beam, rebounding from the pavement, looked like a serpent darting on its prey. Quasimodo saw the vagrant scatter as the log fell, like ashes before the breath of a child. He took advantage of their terror, and while they stared superstitiously at the club dropped from heaven, and put out the eyes of the stone saints over the porch with a volley of arrows and buckshot, Quasimodo silently collected plaster, stones, gravel, even the mason's bag of tools, upon the edge of that balustrade from which the beam had already been launched. Thus, as soon as they began to batter at the door, the hail of stones began to fall, and it seemed to them as if the church were falling about their heads. Anyone who had seen Quasimodo at that moment would have been frightened. Besides the projectiles which he had piled upon the balustrade, he had collected a heap of stones on the platform itself. As soon as the missiles at the edge of the railing were exhausted, he had recourse to the heap below. He stooped and rose, stooped and rose again, with incredible activity. His great gnome-like head hung over the balustrade, then a huge stone fell, then another and another. Now and again he followed a particularly fine stone with his eye, and if it did good execution, he said, Hmm. Meantime, the ragamuffins were not discouraged. More than twenty times already the heavy door which they were attacking had trembled beneath the weight of their oaken battering ram, multiplied by the strength of a hundred men. The panels cracked, the carvings flew in splinters, the hinges at every blow shook upon their screw rings, the boards were reduced to powder, crushed between the iron braces. Luckily for Quasimodo, there was more iron than wood. Still, he felt that the great door was yielding. Although he could not hear, every stroke of the beam echoed at once through the vaults of the church and through his soul. He saw from above the vagrants, full of rage and triumph, shaking their fists at the shadowy façade. And he coveted, for himself and for the gypsy girl, the wings of the owls which flew over his head in numbers. His shower of stones did not suffice to repel the enemy. At this moment of anguish he observed, a little below the balustrade from which he was crushing the men of slang, 
two long stone gutters, or spouts, which emptied directly over the great door. The inner orifice of these spouts opened upon a level with the platform. An idea flashed into his mind. He ran to the hovel which he occupied as ringer, found a faggot, placed upon this faggot a quantity of bundles of laths and rolls of lead, ammunition which he had not yet used, and having carefully laid this pile before the mouth of the two spouts, he set fire to it with his lantern. During this space of time, the stones having ceased to fall, the vagrants had also ceased to look up. The bandits, panting like a pack of dogs which have hunted a wild boar to his lair, crowded tumultuously about the door, disfigured by the battering ram, but still holding firm. They awaited, with a shudder of eagerness, the final blow which should shiver it. Each one strove to be nearest to it, that he might be first, when it opened, to rush into that wealthy cathedral, the vast magazine in which were stored all the riches of three centuries. They reminded each other, with roars of joy and greed, of the beautiful silver crosses, the gorgeous brocade copes, the superb monuments of silver gilt, the magnificences of the choir, the dazzling holiday displays, the Christmas ceremonies glittering with torches, the Easter's brilliant with sunshine, all the splendid and solemn occasions when shrines, candlesticks, pyxes, tabernacles, and reliquaries embossed the altars with encrusted gold and diamonds. Certainly, at this auspicious moment, every one of the vagrants thought far less of freeing the gypsy girl than they did of sacking Notre Dame. We would even be willing to believe that to a goodly number of them, Esmeralda was but a mere pretext, if thieves require a pretext. All at once, just as they gathered together about the battering ram for a final effort, every man holding his breath and straining his muscles so as to lend all his strength to the decisive blow, a howl more frightful even than that which had risen and died away from beneath the rafter again burst from their midst. Those who did not shriek, those who still lived, looked up. Two streams of molten lead fell from the top of the building into the very thickest of the throng. The sea of men had subsided beneath the boiling metal which had made, at the points where it fell, two black and smoking holes in the crowd, as boiling water would in snow. About them writhed the dying, half-consumed, and shrieking with agony. Around the two principal jets there were drops of this horrible rain which sprinkled the assailants, and penetrated their skulls like gimlets of flame. A leaden fire riddled the poor wretches as with countless hailstones. The clamor was heart-rending. They fled pell-mell, flinging the beam upon the corpses, the courageous with the timid, and the square was cleared for the second time. All eyes were turned to the top of the church. What they saw was most strange. Upon the top of the topmost gallery, higher than the central rose window, a vast flame ascended between the two belfries with whirling sparks. A vast flame, fierce and strong, 
fragments of which were ever and anon borne away by the wind with the smoke. Below this flame, below the dark balustrade with its glowing trefoils, two spouts, terminating in gargoyles, vomiting unintermittent sheets of fiery rain, whose silvery streams shone out distinctly against the gloom of the lower part of the cathedral front. As they approached the ground, these jets of liquid lead spread out into sheaves, like water pouring from the countless holes of the rose in a watering pot. Above the flame, the huge towers, each of which showed two sides, clear and trenchant, one all black, the other all red, seemed even larger than they were, from the immensity of the shadow which they cast, reaching to the very sky. Their innumerable carvings of demons and dragons assumed a mournful aspect. The restless light of the flames made them seem to move. There were serpents, which seemed to be laughing, gargoyles yelping, salamanders blowing the fire, dragons sneezing amid the smoke. And among these monsters, thus wakened from their stony slumbers by the flame, by the noise, there was one that walked about and moved from time to time across the fiery front of the burning pile, like a bat before a candle. Doubtless this strange beacon would rouse from afar the woodcutter on the hills of Bicetre, in alarm at seeing the gigantic shadow of the towers of Notre Dame cast flickering upon his moors. The silence of terror fell upon the vagrants, and while it lasted, Nothing was heard save the cries of consternation uttered by the clergy shut up in the cloisters, and, more restive than horses in a burning stable, the stealthy sound of windows hastily opened and more hastily closed, the bustle and stir in the Hotel Dieu, the wind roaring through the flames, the last gasp of the dying, and the constant pattering of the leaden rain upon the pavement. Meantime, the leaders of the vagrants had withdrawn to the porch of the Gondolier house, and were holding council. The Duke of Egypt, seated on a post, gazed with religious awe at the magical pile blazing in the air at the height of two hundred feet. Clopin Troyfou gnawed his brawny fists with rage. "'Impossible to enter,' he muttered between his teeth. "'An old witch of a church,' growled the aged gypsy, Matthias Hungadi Spicali. "'By the Pope's whiskers,' added a grey-haired old scamp, who had served his time in the army. "'Here are church spouts that beat the portcullis of Lecture at spitting molten lead.' "'Do see that demon walking to and fro before the fire,' exclaimed the Duke of Egypt. "'By the rood,' said Clopin, "'it's that damned bell-ringer. It's Quasimodo.' The gypsy shook his head. I tell you that it is the spirit of Sabnak, the great Marquis, the demon of fortifications. He takes the form of an armed soldier with a lion's head. He turns men to stones with which he builds towers. He commands fifty legions. It is surely he. I recognize him. Sometimes he is clad in a fine gown of figured gold made in the Turkish fashion." "'Where is Belvine de l'Etoile?' asked Clopin. "'He is dead,' replied a vagrant woman. "'André Le Rouge laughed a foolish laugh. 
Notre Dame makes plenty of work for the hospital, said he. Is there no way to force that door? cried the king of Tunis, stamping his foot. The Duke of Egypt pointed sadly to the two streams of boiling lead, which still streaked the dark facade like two long phosphorescent spindles. Churches have been known to defend themselves before, he observed with a sigh. Saint Sophia, at Constantinople, some forty years ago, thrice threw down the crescent of Mahomet merely by shaking her domes, which are her heads. Guillaume de Paris, who built this church, was a magician. "'Must we then go home discomfited like a pack of wretched lackeys?' said Clopin, "'and leave our sister here to be hanged by those cowled wolves to-morrow?' "'And the sacristy, where there are cartloads of gold?' added a vagabond, whose name we regret that we do not know. "'By Mohammed's beard!' cried Choifu. "'Let us make one more trial,' added the vagabond. Matthias Hungadi shook his head. "'We shall not enter by the door. We must find the weak spot in the old witch's armor. A hole, a back gate, any joint.' "'Who'll join us?' said Clopin. "'I shall have another try. By the way, where's that little student Jeanne, who put on such a coat of mail?' "'He is probably dead,' answered someone. "'We don't hear his laugh.' The king of Tunis frowned. So much the worse. There was a stout heart beneath that steel. And Master Pierre Gringoire? Captain Clopin, said André Le Rouge. He took to his heels when we had only come as far as the Pont au Changeur. Clopin stamped his foot. By the mass, he urges us on and then leaves us in the lurch. A cowardly praetor, helmeted with a slipper. Captain Clopin, said André Le Rouge, who was looking down the Rue du Parvis. There comes the little student. Pluto be praised, said Clopin. But what the devil is he lugging after him? It was indeed Jeanne, running as fast as was possible under the weight of his heavy armor and a long ladder which he dragged sturdily over the pavement, more breathless than an ant harnessed to a blade of grass twenty times its own length. Victory! Te Deum! shouted the student. Here's the ladder belonging to the longshoreman of St. Landry's Wharf. Clopin approached him. Zounds, child, what are you going to do with that ladder? I've got it, replied Jeanne, panting and gasping. I knew where it was, under the shed of the lieutenant's house. There's a girl there who knows me, who thinks me a perfect Cupid. I took advantage of her folly to get the ladder and I have the ladder, odds bodikins. The poor girl came down in her shift to let me in. Yes, said Clopin, but what will you do with the ladder now that you have got it? Jeanne looked at him with a mischievous, cunning air, and cracked his fingers like so many castanets. At that moment he was sublime. He had on his head one of those enormous fifteenth-century helmets, which terrified the foe by their fantastic crests. It bristled with ten iron beaks, so that he might have disputed the tremendous Greek epithet, armed with ten spurs, with Nestor's Homeric vessel. "'What shall I do with it, August King of Tunis? Do you see that row of statues with their foolish faces yonder, above the three porches?' "'Yes.' 
What then? That is the gallery of the kings of France. What is that to me? said Clopin. Wait a bit. At the end of that gallery there is a door which is always on the latch, and with this ladder I will climb to it, and then I am in the church. Let me go up first, boy. Not a bit of it, comrade. The ladder is mine. Come, you may be second. May Beelzebub strangle you, said the surly Clopin. I'll not be second to any man. Then, Clopin, seek a ladder for yourself. And Jeanne set out at full speed across the square, dragging his ladder after him, shouting, Help! Lads, help! In an instant, the ladder was lifted and placed against the railing of the lower gallery, over one of the side doors. The crowd of vagrants, uttering loud cheers, thronged to the foot of it, eager to ascend. But Jeanne maintained his right, and was first to set foot upon the rounds. The journey was long and slow. The gallery of the kings of France is, in this day, some sixty feet above the pavement. The eleven steps leading to the door made it still higher at the time of our story. Jeanne climbed slowly, hampered by his heavy armor, clinging to the ladder with one hand and his crossbow with the other. When he reached the middle, he cast a melancholy glance downwards at the poor dead men of slang who bestrewed the steps. Alas, said he, there's a heap of corpses worthy of the fifth book of the Iliad. Then he resumed his ascent. The vagrants followed him. There was one upon every round. As this undulating line of cuirassed backs rose through the darkness, it looked like a serpent with scales of steel rearing its length along the church. Jeanne, who represented the head, whistled shrilly, thus completing the illusion. At last the student touched the balcony and nimbly strode over it, amid the applause of the assembled vagrants. Thus master of the citadel, he uttered a shout of joy and all at once paused, petrified. He had seen behind one of the royal statues Quasimodo, and his glittering eye lurking in the shadow. Before a second assailant could set foot upon the gallery, the terrible hunchback leaped to the top of the ladder, seized, without a word, the ends of the two uprights in his strong hands, raised them, pushed them from the wall, balancing for a moment, amid screams of agony, the long, pliant ladder loaded with vagrants from top to bottom, and then, suddenly, with superhuman force, hurled the cluttering mass of men into the square. There was an instant when the boldest trembled. The ladder plunged backward, for a moment stood erect, and seemed to hesitate, then tottered, then all at once, describing a frightful arc of eighty feet in radius, fell headlong on the pavement with its burden of bandits, more swiftly than a drawbridge when the chains which hold it are broken. There was an awful volley of curses, then all was hushed, and a few mutilated wretches crawled away from under the heap of dead. A clamor of rage and pain followed the first cries of triumph among the besiegers. Quasimodo looked on unmoved, leaning upon the balustrade. He seemed like some long-haired old king at his window. Jean Frollo, for his part, 
was in a critical situation. He was alone in the gallery with the dreadful ringer, parted from his companions by a perpendicular wall eighty feet high. While Quasimodo juggled with the ladder, the student hurried to the postern, which he supposed would be open. Not at all. The deaf man, on entering the gallery, had fastened it behind him. Jeanne then hid himself behind a stone king, not daring to breathe, and eyeing the monstrous hunchback with terror, like the man who, making love to the wife of the keeper of a menagerie, went one night to see her by appointment, climbed the wrong wall, and abruptly found himself face to face with a white bear. For a few moments the deaf man paid no heed to him, but finally he turned his head and started. He had just seen the student. Jeanne prepared for a rude encounter, but the deaf man stood motionless. He had merely turned and was looking at the youth. Ho, ho, said Jeanne. Why do you fix that single melancholy eye so steadfastly upon me? As he said this, the young scamp slyly adjusted his crossbow. Quasimodo, he cried, I am going to change your name. Henceforth you shall be called the blind. The arrow flew. The winged bolt whizzed through the air and was driven into the hunchback's left arm. It disturbed Quasimodo no more than a scratch would have done the statue of King Pharamond. He put his hand to the dart, pulled it forth, and quietly broke it across his great knee. Then he let the two pieces fall to the ground, rather than threw them down. But Jeanne had no time to fire a second shot. The arrow broken, Quasimodo drew a long breath, leaped like a grasshopper, and came down upon the student, whose armor was flattened against the wall by the shock. Then, by the dim light of the torches, a terrible thing might have been seen. Quasimodo, with his left hand, grasped both Jeanne's arms, the poor fellow making no resistance, so hopeless did he feel that it would be. With his right hand, the deaf man removed from him one after the other, in silence and with ominous slowness, all the pieces of his armor. The sword, the daggers, the helmet, the cuirass, and the brassarts. He looked like a monkey picking a nut as he dropped the student's iron shell, bit by bit, at his feet. When the youth found himself stripped, disarmed, naked, and helpless in those terrible hands, he did not try to speak to that deaf man, but he laughed impudently in his face, and sang, with the bold unconcern of a lad of sixteen, the song then popular. She's clad in bright array, the city of Cambrai. Marifin plundered her one day. He did not finish. They saw Quasimodo upright on the parapet, holding the boy by the feet with one hand, and swinging him round like a sling over the abyss. Then a sound was heard, like a box made of bone dashed against a wall, and something fell, but caught a third of the way down upon a projection. It was a dead body which hung there, bent double, the back broken, the skull empty. A cry of horror rose from the vagrants. "'Vengeance!' yelled Clopin. "'Sack!' replied the multitude. 
Assault! Assault! Then there was an awful howl, intermingled with all languages, all dialects, and all accents. The poor student's death filled the mob with zealous fury. Shame gained the upper hand, and wrath that they had so long been held in check before a church by a hunchback. Rage found ladders, multiplied torches, and in a few moments Quasimodo, in despair, beheld that fearful swarm mounting on all sides to attack Notre Dame. Those who had no ladders had knotted ropes. Those who had no ropes scrambled up by the jutting sculptures. They clung to one another's rags. There was no way to resist this rising tide of awful figures. Fury gleamed from their fierce faces. Their grimy foreheads streamed with perspiration. Their eyes gleamed. All these grimaces, all these deformities beset Quasimodo. It seemed as if some other church had sent its gorgons, its medieval animals, its dragons, its demons, and its most fantastic carvings to lay siege to Notre Dame. A stratum of living monsters seemed to cover the stone monsters of the cathedral front. Meantime, the square was starred with a thousand torches. The scene of confusion, hitherto lost in darkness, was suddenly ablaze with light. The square shone resplendent and cast a red glow upon the heavens. The bonfire kindled upon the high platform still burned and lighted up the city in the distance. The huge silhouette of the two towers, outlined afar upon the housetops of Paris, formed a vast patch of shadow amid the radiance. The city seemed to be aroused. Distant alarm bells sounded. The vagrants howled, panted, swore, climbed higher and higher. And Quasimodo, powerless against so many foes, shuddering for the gypsy girl, seeing those furious faces approach nearer and nearer to his gallery, implored heaven to grant a miracle, and wrung his hands in despair. <laughs>